You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, three of us will be reading you a Christmas story that's no longer available to be read anywhere else, so you don't have to. The Stocking Killers by Simon A. Brett Are you finished yet? Give us a minute! A large blue box, known to some as a TARDIS, filled one end of what was, ostensibly, a bathroom. More precisely, one created for the general use by the female form of the human species. Thankfully, the police box doors face forward into the room, easing exit, and its pilot, a tall and thin man with a shock of spiky dark hair, lounged up against his vehicle, waiting rather impatiently for his current travelling companion to finish whatever it was she was doing inside a slightly different box. She, meanwhile, was busy within one of the bathroom cubicles designed specifically for her use. There's a whole universe out there, Donna, mostly unexplored and fascinating, said the doctor his voice echoing around the tiled room. And you've stepped three feet from the TARDIS and taken up residence in a toilet. Well, excuse me, but there are times a lady wants to use a normal bog. I'm sorry, but the facilities in that spaceship of yours may look like toilets, but they're not toilets. And my body has been thinking it's at the Glastonbury Festival for the last week. Too much information, said the doctor, rubbing one eye intensely. He pursed his lips, took a loud breath, and scanned the dust-covered basins. He drew one finger across a tap, collecting a grey residue on its tip. So why do you think the TARDIS landed in here, he ventured. There was a slight pause. The Doctor wasn't sure if this was to facilitate drama or the outside chance of a measured response from a lady of Donna's persuasion. His thoughts skirted around the most likely explanation that whatever she was doing in the cubicle was most probably taking all of her attention. It's female, she replied. The Doctor opened his mouth to react, then thought better of it, sucking the thoughts back into their special place and filling the void with a dusty digit. Smacking his lips, he turned a tap and after a short grumble... The pipes led water to its spout. Uh, no, in general, she... I mean, the ship lands somewhere inconspicuous, somewhere it won't be disturbed. This bathroom hasn't been used in quite a while. Still plumbed in, but unused, mind you, he said, making sense of the signals from his taste buds. If we're where I think we are, it's not such a surprise. Fascinating, said Donna. Do you always look for mysteries in people's bathrooms? Wiping his tongue on the sleeve of his coat, the doctor responded, Only if I'm bored, which is rare, although... The door slammed open and Donna stood there with a strange air of relaxed serenity. Better, said the doctor. You have no idea, she replied, throwing her hair back. I'm walking on airspace, boy, over the flipping moon. You said it, muttered the doctor under his breath. The corridor outside was white and functional. As corridors go, it went from A to B with no hint of imagination, let alone a bend or two. However, halfway along... A shuttered panel broke up the monotony of plain walls enough to entice Donna into pressing a button on the panel next to it. Motors whined into life as a large rectangular window revealed itself, taking up much of the space of the wall for possibly the first time in a decade. Largely unimpressed, Donna commented, Reminds me of the electric blinds in my old office. I had the company install them on account of my sensitivity to light. Could do with a bit of oil on... Donna's remark was clipped short by the sight of a luminescent planet Earth nosing majestically over the edge of a lunar landscape. The doctor sniffed sharply in immodest recognition of his own brilliance and patted her reassuringly on the shoulder. But that's... Yup. We're... Probably, yes. Well, put it this way, that bathroom had a lovely layer of moon dust. Earth moon dust, to be precise. Tastes a bit like Aspie de Lazouche. So yes, it would appear we're probably on the moon, orbiting the Earth. For all of her protestations, Donna had repeatedly been moved in ways that she could never have comprehended mere weeks before her travels with the doctor began. Whenever she rested in her TARDIS quarters, she would think back to the days not so long ago when the highlight of her week was hearing the latest clothing catalogue drop on the doormat. 
how she would spend countless hours discussing the behaviour of people she had never even met, like it had some kind of unspoken importance over her personal well-being. Memories of those times were now remembered in black and white. Her days with the doctor shone with technicolour radiance, and even the grey of the dust ball outside seemed to glitter in a way that inspired awe. This was a new feeling for Donna, and she hoped that her feet would never touch the floor of an Essex typing pool again. Not that she would ever tell the doctor that. Not just yet, anyway. The doctor, meanwhile, spent a moment enjoying Donna's silence. Not a not-talking silence, but the silence of an expanding mind. If he hoped one thing to come from her time with him, it would be that she would learn that sometimes less is more. Her muted stance said a thousand words, and he smiled covertly to himself. He wouldn't show her his pleasure. Not just yet, anyway. With a noisy gasp and a jump, the doctor turned to the more interesting of the three doors that lay ahead of them, as signified by a yellow and black striped cautionary border. Surprisingly, his sonic screwdriver, his universal tool of choice, remained inert in his pocket, and with his mere physical presence the door opened with a pressure release and a smooth glide. There were no lights within, so it was with some relief to himself that the doctor reached inside his coat to his oldest friend. He pointed the device to a control panel just inside the dark room, its blue beam magically sparking the dormant electronics into life. Light flooded across what appeared to be an expansive hangar large enough to carry a small aircraft, but instead full to the brim with what seemed to be cardboard boxes of varying sizes stacked on metal shelving as far as the eye could see, each container an identical soulless brown save for a small label with a barcode at its corner. But the Doctor and Donna made the brief assumption that this was nothing more than a disused storage area, left forgotten by its previous owners. Then the sudden sound of movement echoed down to the visitors from the top level of boxes, the scrabble of small feet padding and scratching their way across the containers. Little boxes on the hillside, sang the doctor under his breath. Listen, interrupted Donna. They've got mice, said the doctor in an equally melodic tone. A mouse on the moon? It's not unheard of, but no, that's not rodent movement. No droppings for a start. They're too clever for traps too, a new voice interjected from behind. I've tried catching them, but the little blighters seem to be pretty bright. But more impressively, how did you people get in here without me knowing? Hello, we're making an inspection. Head office. I'm the doctor. This is Donna. We're not a couple, said Donna. Right, said the man, trying to make sense of the comment. Well, I wasn't aware of a scheduled inspection. He stood thinking for a moment, then, being unable to make any real sense of the traveller's presence other than the perfectly reasonable, if somewhat unlikely, explanation that they had given, he changed demeanour in a heartbeat and gave a broad grin. At the end of the day, he was grateful for the company. I guess I'd better get on with the show, he said. Show? questioned the doctor. Uh, don't you want to see some ID? Nah, take it you arrived by T-Mat? That would have easily sidestepped the airlock security. I'm Chris, by the way, and he moved enthusiastically over to a panel on the wall. Chris, the caretaker, stroked a series of buttons and an array of apertures in the walls fired shafts of intense light into the room. Instantly, the bland brown boxes erupted into vibrant colours dominated mostly by repeating patterns of red and green. Chris then disappeared momentarily into a small cloakroom nearby. Christmas presents? exclaimed Donna. T-Mat. He mentioned T-Mat. T-Mat and Christmas presents. Right. The doctor looked to the roof, squinting at where the strange noises had come from. Donna tugged repeatedly at the doctor's coat, and he turned to see Chris re-enter the room dressed head to toe in a red fur-lined suit and now sporting a white, obviously false, bushy beard. Call me Santa. No. 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 No, said Donna, grinning from ear to ear. Er, no, said the doctor, shaking his head. Circling Chris, the doctor continued. 
Indulge me, Santa. A little history test. I'm guessing this is the old team at station on the moon, yes? After it was shut down after a little incident with some Martians, it was sold off privately to a company who rebooted the technology for commercial means, yes? Chris nodded. The Cal Corporation bought the station, renamed the system Team Art, and now supply the Santa effect directly to the children of the world, or at least to those children with the parents who can pay for it. The wrapping paper on the boxes flickered and faded from view. Sorry about that, said Chris. Bulbs don't last long. We only use it for promotional visits and the odd rare inspection. In fact, you're the first. Are we indeed, said the doctor. So what has the real Santa got to say about this, he asked, deadly serious. Donna turned and looked at him, eyes squinting and looking for signs of mischief. What do you mean, replied Chris, equally bemused by the man's odd inference. Never mind, something tells me that something's got in through your system, judging by the sounds we're hearing, so I guess we'd better sort it out for you, eh, Christopher? I thought you were inspectors, not exterminators, said Chris. Oh, we do the lot, said Donna, now resigned to join in whatever charade had hijacked the doctor's logic. She turned to the caretaker and chirpily asked, So who chooses who gets what for Crimbo, then? Well, the child, of course, said Chris, who then lifted the false beard to scratch around his lips. They write a list. Not quite, he replied, lifting off the false beard and giving his mouth a swift exercise to restore it to normal movement. Let me show you the reader. Leading them to the other end of the room, he slid back another nondescript set of large doors behind which stood a multitude of panels. He flicked a switch and a jewellery box of blinking lights flickered into activity. Instantly, Donna was transported back to summer holidays in the 1970s for those few times when her concentration was distracted away from Cindy dolls by endless reruns of Flash Gordon serials. This technology to her 21st century eyes looked somewhat dated. Or was this yet another lesson in time travel, that one could travel so far into the future as to meet the cycles of fashion as they came back around? Maybe she was right to keep those boob tubes after all. She momentarily cursed herself for not having packed them in her space travel suitcase. Her internal meandering was brought to an abrupt end by Chris placing a strange headpiece over her forehead. What's he doing, Doctor? Has he got a licence? Go with it, Donna. Should be interesting, the Doctor reassured. Think Christmassy thoughts, madam. Ho, 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 Chris grinned to himself. I never get tired of that bit. Really miss it from when I worked at the department store. If I end up looking like Pete Burns, I'm suing. Donna was suddenly not in a nostalgic mood. The headband began to buzz slightly. It brought the fine hairs on Donna's face to attention. She scratched at her cheeks. A strangely distorted version of Santa Claus's coming to town played out of a single speaker above her left ear. I added that bit, said Chris, pleased with himself. The doctor and Donna gave each other a glance, not unlike visiting paramedics. Eventually a green light appeared over her right eye and the music stopped abruptly. In a port low down behind where Chris was standing, the doctor and Donna could see a shape manifesting into being, reshaping at incredible speed within a strobe light. Gradually the features of a small child appeared, on what was becoming obvious as the head at the peak of a small body, making Donna feel decidedly uncomfortable. Eventually the clear features of a child's doll could be seen looking up at them. I don't believe it, she said, pushing past Chris. Where did you get this? And she span around at him to give him a hard stare. The man stood, rocking on his heels, positively giggling to himself. The doll stood a foot tall. Long dark hair framed a porcelain-like face, with rose-red lips pursed in a Betty Boot kiss. A tartan dress mirrored the red, with a matching crimson messenger bag to its side. From out of your noggin, Chris said, an index finger tapping against his temple. Once the item is resolved, it is automatically short-range team-matted to one of those allocated boxes and waits for the big delivery day. Obviously, I'm reading your mind straight into the machine, but ordinarily my colleagues back on Earth discreetly take a mind map of our customers' kids and upload the readings to this machine, ready for manufacture. This is not nice, said Donna to the doctor. The last time I saw this doll, it was sticking out of a dustbin when I was six. It always gave me the creeps. 
I used to tell my mum that I thought I could hear her crying in pain at night. Freaked me out so much that my dad took it away from me. Must have been frightening if you were scared, Donna, and I've seen your mum. The doctor sniffed and turned to the caretaker. Is this what you're doing for all the kids, Chris? What, extracting the perfect gift for them from their brainwaves? He replied. No, sending them their darkest fears in their stockings. I mean, traditions change through the years, but I'm pretty sure that Christmas is a time of year when you're nice to each other. Goodwill to all men and all that. Not, here's a toy that will stick a lid on your childhood. Chris looked positively affronted. Are you sure? He said, taking the doll from Donna's frozen grasp. It's lovely this doll looks. even got a little wand in her hand. Bit odd to be fair, but that's what you call attention to detail. And there it was, a small, perfect replica of the Doctor's own sonic screwdriver. The Doctor didn't know what this meant exactly. Maybe Donna's mind had made this little change to the doll somewhere in her subconscious. Yes, that was it. The Doctor swung around to Chris and shouted, Show me the control room! Chris immediately dropped the doll to the floor like a toddler losing interest in her toy. Donna stepped over it, eager to be away from its stare. Yet another grey room, thought Donna, as Chris led them through yet another dull corridor to a space dominated by an array of ten monitor screens. Each showed a monotone view of a different area of the hangar. These screens are for monitoring production. Bit of a leftover from the TMAT days as they got installed directly after that Martian business. They needn't have bothered because the business went up in smoke pretty soon after that when people started mistrusting it. No need, safest way to travel if you ask me. Yes, I can imagine. It's a lovely way to get around, more popular than you'd think said the doctor, surveying each screen in turn and finally squinting at one that focused on a particular batch of boxes. I'm going to the storeroom. Lock yourselves in here and watch the screens. Don't do anything else, just watch the screens. Where are you going? Donna asked, still trembling. Mouse hunting, replied the doctor, his face changing in a trice from a concerned eyebrow-heavy look to a broad grin. He winked momentarily, causing Donna to give the tiniest smile. She checked herself and wheeled around on her heels to look at the monitors. Chris shut the door to the control room, punched a numeric code into a nearby keypad and found himself his favourite chair to watch the show. After a couple of minutes, they saw the Doctor take up position at one end of the hangar. He raised an arm and they could just make out a flash of grainy fluorescence appearing at the end of his hand. He looked down, then looked up and started jumping on the spot. What on earth is he up to? said Chris. I dread to think, replied Donna. As they watched, they slowly realised that each moment the Doctor entered the air, he was staying aloft slightly longer. He's turned off the artificial gravity, said Chris. What the bloody hell is he up to? He pressed a number of buttons, and instantly all ten screens displayed the Doctor's actions from different angles. Once he found himself able to maintain a good height, the Doctor started to make his way along the shelves of boxes. As he reached the extent of each jump, Donna and Chris could see a flash of light from the Doctor's screwdriver aimed directly at the top of the containers. They sat watching the Doctor tirelessly bound along shelf after shelf. Periodically, he would stop and check his screwdriver for readings before building up height once again and continuing to the next section. It surprised even Donna at how quickly the most cosmic of adventures could become monotonous, and she let out a yawn. She cocked her head and slowly turned her chair towards the caretaker, a smug smirk fixed on her face. Here, Chris. Ten Time Lords are leaping, get it? And she nodded sideways to the ten monitor screens, each giving its own depiction of the Doctor's progress. Chris looked at her blankly, smiled politely, then turned back to the entertainment. Suit yourself, she said, and returned to monitoring the action. It was only then that she saw something move just above the doctor's head. Is there a tannoy? Quick, where's the tannoy? A what? Oh, a voice system, said Chris, suddenly realising Donna's urgency. He punched a button and handed a small device shaped like a pepper pot to Donna, which she in turn assumed must be a microphone of sorts. Doctor, there's something there above your head, called Donna, her voice reverberating around the hangar. The doctor had already stopped. He was dwelling upon whatever his readings were telling him. 
He then adjusted the setting on his screwdriver and raised his arm. Donna pulled back her head as the doctor appeared to aim the device directly at her through the monitor and then systematically at each of the cameras. There was a moment of static before the image changed to what appeared to be something similar to an infrared setting. They could see all as before, except it was now built up of varying shades of purple. This came as an instant shock to Chris, as up to this point the screens had only ever displayed in black and white. Then they saw movement. One by one, small areas of light were making their way out of the top of the boxes and were beginning to work their way stealthily towards the doctor. Oh my God, said Chris, and he reached to another set of switches. A ceiling-mounted set of spotlights powered up around the hangar. Now the Doctor could see right the way across the extremities of the storeroom. The walls appeared to be moving, undefined silhouettes cascading along the rows of boxes towards him. Small shapes slowly reached the light, enabling the Doctor to see what his predators actually were. Goblins, dragons, spiders, clowns, all manner of childhood fears had manifested in the form of plastic toys, their Christmas wrapping paper dragging from their feet and claws. Suddenly the doctor felt something jump onto his back and before he knew it a strand of tinsel had been gathered around his throat. Reaching behind him he felt something, grasped it then pulled, throwing down an action figure that hit the floor, breaking into two. Looking down he saw a small but beautiful detailed pirate that despite being split in two was angrily thrusting a cutlass towards him. He scrambled to the door and started banging frantically. Meanwhile Chris had frozen in his seat, eyes agape at the mayhem below. Open the door Chris, open the bloody door! Donna said, pushing him aside, then punching at the keypad in sheer desperation. But they're just toys. They're all just toys. The doctor, having given up on escape from the main door, had started bounding once again to try and evade attack. One jump resulted in a direct hit to his head from a plastic bat. He fell to the floor. He sat up to find a toy Dalek trundling towards him, its gun giving off a menacing glow. He wondered for a moment how much damage the gun from a 12-inch Dalek could do, but he didn't want to find out. As he scrabbled backwards, his feet rolled over an object. Looking down, he saw Donna's doll. His hand was outstretched, almost offering the miniature screwdriver to him. No, that won't work, he said to himself, instantly realising that he was talking to a toy. He bundled up the doll and bounded as best as he could to put some distance between himself and the toys. On finding Chris's cloakroom, the doctor took a moment to examine the doll once again. What is it you know, eh? What makes you different? He pulled the minute screwdriver from its grasp. To all intents and purposes, it was indeed a perfect miniature replica of the Doctor's own screwdriver. Suddenly, he smacked himself in the forehead with a dum-dum-dum-dum-dum. You're holding the screwdriver the wrong way round. You're scanning yourself. He reached into his coat and withdrew his own full-size screwdriver and pointed it at the doll. And there's your extra little bit of Christmas magic, he said, looking at the readings. He turned to the toys that were just about to pounce in unison with a confident gesture he pointed his screwdriver at the approaching miniature horde. Instantly, they dropped to the floor, lifeless. That's the trick, Winnersteens, you see. You just need to read the instructions in the right language to switch them off, said the Doctor, now nonchalant in a state of post-danger. So they make toys come alive? In basic terms, yes, they have control over living plastic. The Nestine consciousness's latest bid to invade the Earth by invading kids' stockings. Oh, how I miss all those invasions. Used to have one every week back in the day. He handed the mind-reading headpiece back to Chris, who sat supping at a flask of undisclosed contents. I've reprogrammed this thing of me, so it's all back to normal. Well, just about, anyway. What have you done? asked Donna. I'll tell you in a minute, whispered the doctor to her, before turning back to Chris, and with a big smile, saying, Best of luck with the Christmas rush, Chrissy boy. You've passed the inspection with flying colours. Uh, thank you, sir, said Chris, not knowing where or how to look. Merry Christmas to you both. Safe journey. Now there's a joke said Donna as they both turned to find their way back to the TARDIS. 
Eventually, they found themselves back in the ladies' bathroom. The TARDIS still stood amongst the cubicles, awaiting their return. So what have you done to that machine, Doctor? inquired Donna. Just a little biogenetic algorithm. Basically, all it will ever manufacture from now on is a replica of the subject's parents, replied the Doctor, unlocking the door to his ship. Oh, very good. What a nice thing to do, she said. The Doctor wasn't sure if there was a hint of sarcasm to her tone. He had seen her mother after all. Well, it is Christmas after all down there on Earth, said the Doctor, looking upwards as if contemplating his own saintly qualities. Though I'm not sure I'd have been grateful for a toy version of my mother, Donna said, half smiling. I'm sure that's exactly what you'd like to find in your stocking, Doctor. Nah, don't go there, he said. Besides, I've already got everything I need. The Doctor held out a hand to Donna, who first looked down at the outstretched appendage, then back up at the man offering it with a face like thunder. Don't even go there, space boy. You ain't unwrapping anything this Christmas or any other for that matter. And on that note, she slammed the door and locked the cubicle. The Impossible Pear Tree by Lee Rawlings London, 1859 The hammer slows, then finally stops, an angel's breath away from the colossal bell, never striking the last hour. The mechanics of the clock tower are dead still, like a photograph. The brass cogs, ready to move into the next part of their cycle, what they were built for, sit motionless, an ironic stillness. In fact, all of the springs and internal workings of all of the watches and timepieces across London have all been rendered equally useless by the fact that time is slowing down to a stop. Or so it seems. Time is moving, but at an impossibly slow pace. London is caught in a time ripple, a circular, slow, outward-moving time anomaly. It is holding seemingly motionless people like puppets in mid-walk, in poses that look ridiculous and would normally be impossible to hold for any length of time. One complete step could take a hundred years to complete. One flap of a robin's wing and a hundred generations could live and die. Time outside of the ripple is still moving at a normal pace, so onlookers peering in at the people stuck like insects in honey may seem like they are frozen, but they are, in fact, moving through the ages so very, very slowly. The outsiders are lucky, unless their hand, foot or coattail is caught by this creeping doom. Then it is only a matter of time before they too are trapped. Empires could rise, conquer and crumble while a mother kissed her baby's forehead and sang her a song of tenderness and love. A child calling for its parent might have to wait a thousand years for a reply. Just beyond its lips, sound waves held fast, like twisted invisible icicles. In a park somewhere, a snowball hangs an inch away from the glowing cheek of a newly married woman. Her jovial revenge on her husband would take the same time as a moon to crumble away. The evolution of science within this temporary prison acts like a glacier, moving fractionally compared to the torrent of discovery beyond the ripple's influence. A scientist squeezing a complex solution from a pipette onto a plate under a microscope eventually shouts the word Eureka as humanity on the outside leaves the earth in golden spaceships, blazing and arcing fire across the skies, exploring brand new worlds. 
Looking downwards upon the city from the tireless snow spewing clouds, London in the early evening of Christmas Eve 1859 resembles a snow globe, with winding streets, quaint buildings, old stone bridges and a river path along which little people are bustling home to start their festive activities. But this globe cannot be shaken. Everything is frozen, a population stopped fast. In the streets, the snow hanging in mid-air is peppering a scene of carol singers, hot food stalls, market sellers and revellers. The rude white flakes just sit like splashes of white paint, lazily sprayed from the edge of a brush onto this celebratory picture. Mince pies. Their smell, along with the warm fruit, cinnamon and wood smoke, hang motionless in the air like faint, colourless webs. A blind beggar's fire dulls and stops emanating heat as the particles slow their merry dance. Even the few people sleeping, at home or in the streets, are becoming ensnared by the time trap. Dreams start to slow down as the neurons fire slower, and the electricity across the brain crawls like a dying spider through broken memories, fantasies, dreams of love and hate, wealth and fear, all at an impossibly slow and aching pace. A city of bizarre marionettes is spectacular, yet a tragic view. It looks to be a dead city, but it's quite the opposite. The city is very much alive. The blood of all the people and the animals are still pumping, but at the pace of once a week. They're breathing once a month. They are truly living, not dead, stuck in a seemingly perpetual youth, or forever prolonging their twilight years. These living statues have no idea of their situation. What if this ripple stopped moving outwards? Would the outside world look in and grow jealous of their eternal youth? Maybe they would miss these people for a short time, and end up even forgetting them as they themselves grew old, but the city stayed forever young. Phrases like, a snapshot of time, living history, and a curious real-life museum piece would be common when describing what essentially would be Victorian London caught in amber. All of this is happening right now, in a time long past. At the same time, this crisis has already been resolved. The strange explosion of time threatening to make all that has been said permanent. The strange explosion of time threatening to make all of fucking hell, Lee. The strange explosion of time threatening to make all that has been said a permanent reality has already been stopped. Time is strange like that. Its saviour? A brave and fearless time traveller who has saved the universe multiple times and never asks to be thanked. Defeating terrible foes, quashing evil, helping societies come together to fight for themselves and forever bringing peace to worlds. This hero is silent. This hero walks in the shadows. This hero likes making souffles. Tom Finch stood proud, a wretched street child shivering in his patchwork rags that were pretending to be clothes, stood in an archway that led to the back alleys and slums of an area in Victoria, London. 
Despite the pinching cold and the encroaching evening promising more frost and snow, he wore a smile across his smudged face. He was revealing to a small scruffy girl, whose hair looked like an explosion of ginger mixed with dirt, and a taller boy wearing a dog-bitten black cap and a face full of soot, a collection of pears that he had pulled from his deep overcoat pockets and were now nestling in his arms like a collection of puppies. Nathan Tilt and Daisy Plume's eyes were wider than the Queen's dinner plate. Their smiles like pale crescent slits exposed broken teeth sharp like forks. They were both eager to sink their rotten prongs deep into the juicy flesh that was on offer. The bright yellow of the pears, reflected in the children's tired blackened eyes, looked to them like nuggets of gold, twinkling, freshly mined from the deepest, darkest caverns. There were six pears in all, enough for two each. A veritable banquet, pronounced Tom, puffing out his ten-year-old chest. We ain't going hungry this Christmas, nor any other day this winter. What do you mean, Tom? squeaked Daisy loudly, a six-year-old with a voice like someone had stepped on a rat. I mean, he said, leaning in towards them both conspiratorially, there is a pear tree growing pears in the corner of the park and no one has spotted it but me. Nathan's smile dropped and he gave Tom an accusing eye. Tom, don't lie. Just admit it, you half-dinched them. Be done with it. There's no pride in these streets. We're your friends. Now just be truthful. Tom defended his claim. I mean it, Nate. And more than that, it was my special pip that grew it. You know that one that the posh lady gave me in springtime? Er, with the china doll skin and the black hair? Well, that pip, it's all growed up. Nathan scoffed and leaned back, the gold disappearing from his eyes. Now I know you're lying. Firstly, it's midwinter, and nothing grows except the toe in the ollie, and they'll give you the rot. And nextly, trees don't grow that fast. How do you know, Nathan Tilt? You're just a climbing boy. The rat spoke again, slicing the air with her ear-splitting squawk. Nathan winced slightly. Her voice was always so grating. Cos I bothered to look at some pictures in a book once when I was in an house, cleaning. That and me master explained it all to me. Is this before you burnt your feet for sleeping up the chimney when you should have been working? Tom had never worked in his short life, being an orphan since his birth. He lived in the streets. This unpleasant tale of a job, being a chimney sweep, always amused him. Same day, actually, Nathan smiled. He knew very well that Tom liked the story. But you know that already, Finch the Pinch. He can be all right, my master, till he sees he's losing time and money. Then he's a right nasty sod. You know what? If I... He was cut short. Tom was bursting to carry on. I've got more to tell you both, he enthused aching to tell his story. The pear tree. Well, it must be magic or a gift from above or something because, well, there were... I tell you what, Tom, Nathan said, suddenly stopping him. He had been here before, too many times with Tom's tall tales for his patience to allow another one to be heard while he was hungry. Guess one of those yellow miracles to eat and tell us one of your tales properly while we rest our behinds. We could do with forgetting about the cold for a while. Besides, I'm so hungry, me tummy tubes are starting to strangle me. Daisy giggled at this image, and they all sat on the old coal sack up against the red brick of the archway. Nathan hugged Daisy close, keeping her as warm as possible. Being the oldest in the group, he felt it was his job to keep her from the cold. 
Well, Tom's eyes glazed over as he recalled the weirdest tale he'd ever told. I was heading for the Christmas market to find some scraps and all. Turning the corner, opposite the big park, I sees me pear tree. It's like God himself had stuck it there. Eden, in a tree it was. Hundreds of pears, all ready to eat, and no one around picking them off. <laughs> I was just about to scrum the bunch, when suddenly I heard a blood-curdling sound. It sounded like an old bunch of nags croaking it all at the same time. And then I saw a blue hut appear from nowhere. I, I swear, God be my witness. I was scared at me wits. I thought old Nick had finally come for me. I had never seen anything like that in all me born puff. As I watched on, the devil's hut's blue doors opened and a bright light shone out. Ian Chesterton was in one of his scientific curiosity moods. What would you say time is exactly, Doctor? Don't be silly, Chessington, snapped the Doctor, throwing him a stern glance over a small pair of spectacles that were perched on the end of his nose. I can't just ramble off a quick explanation to that question. It's far too complex. Dressed as an Edwardian gentleman, the Doctor looked anachronistic, leaning over a gleaming futuristic six-sided control panel, pulling a lever back and forth. The lever looked broken. Which probably means you don't know yourself, Ian murmured, unable to prevent himself goading the doctor under his breath. He never, ever received a straight answer from the old man. But the doctor had heard him. How dare you question my knowledge of time and all its variants, young man? The doctor snapped, getting irritated. They had been together some time now, a forced crew upon a strange space and time travelling craft known as the ship, or rather, the TARDIS. The craft was the Doctor's. Although he appeared to be in his twilight years, he always had unusual amounts of childlike energy, eyes that were bristling with intelligence, and under his flash of white hair, a brain zipping with genius. They had all been on many dangerous and exciting adventures together over the last few months, and at first this formed an alliance, but that soon changed, and it found itself turning from an alliance to a friendship. Recently, though, there had been a little tension in the air, since the Doctor was forever trying to get Ian and Barbara, school teachers from the 20th century, back to their own time and failing on many occasions. Even though the sights of the universe amazed both teachers, they missed their time period tremendously and were forever urging the Doctor to try and get them back there, back home. Ian continued, Time and all its variants, he tried a different tack and in a calm voice asked, Come on, Doctor, will you not tell me a little something about this science? It fascinates me. I am a science teacher after all. It didn't work. Litmus papers and magnesium strips, the Doctor chuckled condescendingly. What a charming and primitive world you inhabit. Ian bristled. Now listen here, Doctor, there's no need to... The Doctor cut in and punctuated his next remark with a loud flicking of a switch. It would be like teaching quantum physics to an ant. A light flickered on the console in agreement. Oh, so I'm an ant now, am I? Ian retorted by folding his arms. He had just about enough of the doctor's insults. Oh, stop it, Ian, Barbara interceded and took Ian by the arm. Can't you see the doctor can't tell you about it? Probably for a very good reason. What reason? Ian huffed. Well... Just in case you decide to put anything he tells you into practice back on Earth. Quite so, quite so, Barbara. 
The doctor was nodding and wagging a finger. I know your intentions are honest, young man, but one slip to the wrong person about the knowledge of time travel and all its properties could rewrite future history. I simply cannot allow that. He was clearly resolute. Ian was rather hurt by the accusation that he would do anything of the sort, but he could just about understand the old man's worry. Just about. He uncrossed his arms and sank into a very old-looking regal armchair, temporarily defeated. Talking of history, you promised us a surprise, Grandfather. Susan, the doctor's granddaughter, had just entered the console room and lightened the mood instantly with her large grin and sparkling young eyes. <laughs> Indeed I did, Susan, the doctor smiled. He took off his tiny glasses and playfully touched Susan's chin. And we have, in fact, already landed. I do believe it is Earth, London. Ian stood up out of his chair and Barbara flashed him an excited smile. It's rather cold out there, the doctor said as an afterthought. And, oh yes, it's Christmas time. How can you know? Ian asked. The instruments have never been that accurate. The doctor ignored his remark and pointed. The scanner behind you. (laughs) Look! (laughs) He chuckled at his little deception. On the scanner was a snowy afternoon scene. They had landed in a park. Iron railings ran along the perimeter, punctuated with green holly bushes dotted with red berries. There were trees laden with heavy snow like thick icing on a cake, and far across the street, a traditional-looking shop with its windows crammed full of what seemed to be toys. The doctor turned a knob on the console, and from nowhere they could all hear in the distance a choir singing carols of full gusto. By Jove, it is Christmas! Ian was excited. Hearing the familiar Yuletide singing gave Barbara a sudden realisation that they were home. And it is London, Ian! Her heart swelled. The doctor pressed a button and the bleached white doors of the craft hummed open. His mood changed suddenly and his tone was cold. Well, what are you waiting for? He said, gesturing towards the open doors. Run along home, both of you. Go on. Are you not coming? Barbara asked hopefully. She could see he was putting up a wall. But it was one she'd managed to break through a few times before. Maybe join us for some hot chestnuts or a glass of punch. No, thank you. I've had quite enough of Earth people for a while. We may or may not meet again. He looked down at the console and randomly pressed some buttons that appeared to do nothing in particular. He became distant. Well, thank you, Doctor. Barbara cocked her head to one side to get his attention. It's been the most incredible journey. She leaned in forward and gave the doctor a kiss on the cheek. The wall partially crumbled and the doctor broke out of his spell and gave Barbara a tiny smile. It was, however, still connected to his frown, belaying his true emotions. He never did like goodbyes. Ian grabbed the doctor's hand and shook it with vigour. I'm sorry I doubted you, Doctor. You are an incredible man and I will miss all of this. He waved his hand, indicating the TARDIS's huge interior. You will look after Susan, won't you? The Doctor snatched his hand back. Of course I will. Of all the things to say. It may have been mock anger, but it didn't stop Ian and Barbara smiling at each other. They understood his moods well. He could be indignant, but they knew he could see they cared.
They turned and both stood for a second in front of Susan. She paused, looked sad, then burst into tears. She squeezed them both in one huge arm-stretching hug. Ian was the first to talk. <laughs> we'll miss you, Susan. Goodbye and look after him, won't you? Yes, she sniffed. Yes, she sniffed, wiping away a tear from her cheek. S somebody has to. She managed a small wobbly smile. Barbara finished with a final, Well, goodbye both of you, before they turned and walked out into the fresh snow. Was this it? Had the journey that had started that fateful night, when she had persuaded Ian to accompany her to Susan's reported home address, to satisfy her curiosity finally reached full circle? The doctor was about to close the door, when Ian slipped back inside, holding Barbara's hand. What? What's the matter? Susan looked worried. Ian had a mocking tone back in his voice. I think you'd better check your yearometer, Doctor. The last time I looked, 60s Londoners didn't travel around by horse and carriage. Realising he was sitting on a jagged stone, Tom Finch adjusted his body. He lobbed the stone at a passing rodent and carried on with his story. So, out came four odd-looking posh knobs, right? An old man and three grown-ups in clothes, the like of which I'd never seen before. Uh, they started throwing snow at each other and laughing. These are strange devils, I says under my breath. I mean, they began pointing at normal stuff like the lampposts and saying how old-fashioned they looked. What are they going on about? Those posts were in new just a few months back. I even heard them saying a Victorian Christmas was quaint. Oh, and the old geezer said he wanted some hot chestnuts. The other bloke looked like a horseman in the guards I once saw, without the whiskers, you know, the ones outside the Queen's place. He said they should follow their noses for food. There were two ladies and all, a short-haired boyish girl, and then there was an older one who looked like she had a big bonnet, but it was just her hair. I tell you, it was bigger than yours, Daisy, but a little less like some old abandoned bird's nest. He chuckled. But Daisy just frowned at Tom, whilst chewing the stalk of her pear. Tom shrugged and carried on. The younger lady, who was called Susan, pointed at the pear tree and said to the old man, the same as you, Nate, that he shouldn't be there. Nate responded by folding his arms in some kind of triumph. Yeah? Well, what did he say about it then? Hmm, said the doctor under his breath. Curious indeed. He turned to Susan and smiled a broad smile. A mystery, my dear child, a mystery. He did a little chortle as he turned back to the tree, which was groaning under the weight of its yellow fruit. He put his finger up to his mouth and pontificated about how this oddity could have come about. He started to talk out loud. Local distortion? Hmm. You know, Susan, I do believe... Then the world did something very odd indeed. This next bit was real conjuring if ever I saw it. Tom faltered at the recollection. The old man and the young lady just... disappeared. I swear to God, they just vanished. From nowhere, a strange sensation surged through the doctor, almost knocking him over. It was a feeling of being hit by an invisible force. He looked to Susan, who also felt it sweep through her body. But it wasn't just the Doctor and Susan that were affected. 
Bells across London had started to chime the o'clock, and the recently installed Big Ben in London's tallest clock tower struck with a force so hard it felt like a grand statement boasting it was the loudest bell in the land. Unfortunately, this proud clang was cut short as time itself interceded. Every single thing started to slow down, and not one of the bells reached that last audacious hit. Even all of the smaller ones in nearby churches had stopped. Grandfather clocks in hallways and gentlemen's waistcoat pocket watches never reached the fourth strike as time pulled on its reins. London's chimes were halted. The noise of the market in the distance became a slurred cacophony. The sound of passing horses' hooves on cobbled streets, already muffled by the snow, was distancing itself in rhythm and eventually, like the market, fell silent. Carolers were held still, mouths wide open mid-gusto, waiting to finish their phrase. Hark the herald angels! A chestnut, exploding due to heat pressure, had leapt from a brazier, but was held in time's grip, its shards of blackened shell and pulp rudely ripped apart like a backstreet dissection. The market, park, townhouses, workhouses, factories and slums containing the upper and middle and lower classes were all of a sudden levelled with this common ailment. Every single person was stuck in their positions. Nobody was heading, it seemed, into any future, except they were, but not at the normal rate. Impossibly slowly, humanity crawled forwards. London was held like a fossil in a stone. Even Tom, his breath hanging on the freezing winter air, his eyes like wet glass marbles, glistening and staring, his gaze stayed exactly where it was, as did Ian and Barbara's. Ian's cursory glance, looking at a smartly tailored gentleman meeting a fresh-faced lady in a pristine white dress at the top of the steps of her townhouse, became the longest cursory glance he had ever given. His thought of, she looked like a mistletoe berry against her green-painted front door, was halted halfway through. Barbara was admiring and smiling at the sight of the crisp white snowflakes that were, up until a minute ago, nonchalantly floating down to the pure white untouched mini snowdrifts that seemed to have made their home up against the base of the iron street lamps. The snow in the air now looked like it was glued to nothing, stuck, almost like invisible wire might be holding each and every one up in their place. The only people in the whole of London that were seemingly not affected by the anomaly were the Doctor and Susan. Grandfather, Susan shrieked, what's happening? Why has everybody stopped moving? The Doctor had felt this strange sensation before. I think it must be time distortion of some kind and and we are caught in it. Can you feel the waves of time energy, Susan? Yes, Susan thought hard. It's like standing in the sea on a beach, when the waves crash into you, or the current pulls on you. The doctor applauded her. Exactly, my dear child, exactly. I feel this is some kind of time wave, or ripple. Why are we not affected, Grandfather? Her finger pushed a snowflake, and it just moved sideways stayed there for a second, and then glided back into place. Susan, we are seasoned travellers in the fourth dimension. This will not affect us for the moment, but I fear if we don't get to the nub of the problem, we will end up just like these poor souls, stuck in a permanent slow time. 
Susan was starting to panic. How can we stop it? What about Ian and Barbara? Look at them, Grandfather, like waxwork dummies. We don't even know why it's happening. What are we going to do? The doctor answered firmly, but with compassion in his eyes. Dear child, you must compose yourself. It will do no good panicking. We walk in the direction of the wave it's coming from, and if my instincts are correct, and they usually are, with this being a kind of time pulse, it will have a centre. Ripples of energy are emanating from something, from its nexus point. An idea sprang into Susan's mind. Can't we just run back to the TARDIS? It, it would be safe there. No, Susan, we must stop this before it gets worse. Besides, I forgot to turn the hostile action displacement system off, and the TARDIS will have moved a few seconds into the future to protect itself. Susan almost stamped her feet from frustration. I don't want to go to the centre. The effect may be stronger there, Grandfather. And I'm scared. I don't want to be stuck in time. The doctor held one of her shoulders with a comforting hand and looked directly into her worried, half-tearful eyes. There will be an eye of the storm, a calm area where time is running normally. If we reach it, we can solve the riddle. Yes, yes, of course. She grabbed her grandfather's hand and they started heading into the eerie streets of frozen London. As they turned the corner to where the market was located, an incredible sight greeted them. To Susan, it looked like a giant Christmas card. A Victorian scene of hustle and bustle, money exchanging hands for holly, meats, sweets and breads. There was even an amusing scene with a chestnut seller shielding his eyes from a chestnut exploding. At the foot of some steps to a church, the breath of a clergyman arriving to set up even mass looked like flying angels, mystical and misty but frozen solid. The eyes of some ragged street children to the left of her were dimly lit up by a lamp of a charity worker, handing out socks to twig-thin hands. Susan was amazed at the mix of bounty and neediness in this one square. She felt another wave. The doctor was just behind her, but it was becoming harder to walk. The time ripple was strengthening. The doctor opened his mouth to talk, but his voice was slowing down. We must be getting closer. It is starting to affect us. You must keep going, Susan. Susan turned a corner and noticed a pulsating glow just behind a stall. A weird coloured light was splashing an unearthly hue onto the back of a ruddy-cheeked lady waving yuletide puddings at a crowd of onlookers. Susan had let go of the doctor's hand to investigate further, but as she moved closer to the light, she felt a large movement of energy pulse through her body yet again. It made her feel sick, but she pushed herself forward knowing this strange-coloured aura must be the cause of the time waves. She turned back to see the doctor slow to a stop, his wide, alert eyes fixed on Susan, almost saying, That's it, Susan. Push through it. Susan suddenly panicked, forced in a moment into having to decide which way to go, back to the doctor or forward to the problem. She quickly realised it was up to her to solve this crisis, and her alone. And... If she could save the day, she would also save Grandfather. She breathed deeply, composed herself and pushed hard. Her hand slipped through what felt like the skin of water, but water colder than she had ever felt before. 
Real time was moving at its normal rate where her hand had reached, keeping temperature and moisture from the atmosphere at a perishing level. But that was it. She couldn't move any further. It was just her hand that managed to get through. She could no longer find the strength in her body or mind to move out from the time ripple. Instead, she became part of it, like everybody else, caught in time. If these things were to remain unaltered, her hand would wither and grow old before her very eyes, and to her it would be seconds, a dark and sad prospect for such a young and innocent person. So it was lucky for her then that a ghost of Christmas present suddenly appeared from nowhere and tugged the time-traveller's hand hard, pulling her to safety. The ghost had deep brown happy eyes, her skin was like porcelain, and she smiled like there was nothing wrong with the universe. She was dressed in Victorian clothes, with a green winter bonnet blazing across her head like a holly tree halo. This mystery wore no gloves, yet her hands were warm to the touch. As she pulled Susan into real time, the ghost simply said chirpily, Hello. She looked opaque, see-through and confusing, solid yet fluid, but Susan found herself instinctively saying, Hello, back. Still trying to orientate herself to real time, she heard herself add, Who are you? Oh, no one really, the ghost seemed to reply. I'm just somebody who likes to lend a hand now and again. And with that, she wiggled her fingers in a goodbye gesture and glided into the time ripple, still smiling. After a few seconds or so, Susan shook her head. Had she just experienced that? What indeed was that to have experienced? Her mind turned to the immediate view. There was a definite circle where time was keeping the world waiting for an eternity. It reminded her of the shape of a whirlpool. The anomaly had a slight blurry look to it, just like looking through smudged glass, but with humans on the other side still as roughly painted ornaments. The sight of her grandfather frozen made Susan leap up with a bound. She turned and followed the light. As soon as she saw where the light was emanating from, she smiled. It was a blob, the size of a child's fist, shimmering with rainbow colours and lying on the lip of a milk churn. The churn was rusting before her eyes and there was a terrible pungent smell of rotten cheese coming from inside it. There were newly coopered barrels full of liquor close by, and one side of each barrel facing the blob looked rotten. The liquor seeping out into the snow was instantly evaporating. The ground around the blob was clear of any snow, and there were weeds, tall through the cobbles, that were growing while she watched. She knew this odd-looking blob. She had seen it before, not too long ago, and she called it the Time Anemone. Susan remembered her chronobiology classes. These were fascinating creatures that lived in the vortex, between cracks in time. Those classes also taught her about the myths and half-truths. The great Kronos, for instance, a terrifying winged being that was considered by some ancient Gallifreyans to be the lord of the vortex. To Susan, it just looked like a big chicken, not very terrifying at all. Then there was the beautiful, bizarre blob, the Time Anemone, was a nickname, 
a good replacement for its very long and unpronounceable Gallifreyan name. Barely a living being, it had no means of moving. It would just appear from nowhere, float about absorbing energy and eventually die. It was an offshoot from the vortex itself, like a lump of gristle. It was a blob of condensed vortex energy, powerful yet meaningless. Sometimes they would just pop into existence and live for a thousand years, other times a tenth of a second, flying about and mopping up crano energy. They had no brain or thought processes. It acted on pure instinct, no more intelligent than the simplest of organisms. But it did have a defence mechanism if its life was threatened. The time and enemies could send a pulse out from their body, so powerful it could age anything to death within minutes, or slow time to a near standstill. This would guarantee its safety for millennia. But it could be placated, and made to reverse any danger with a paradox. This had all fascinated Susan, and seeing one in a see-through zero box in the classroom, perfect for holding in a near state of calm, she longed to touch its strange shimmering mass, just out of curiosity more than anything else. And here one was. But where was the paradox to come from to save everybody here, in London? She put her hands to her face and could feel helplessness and despair welling up inside her, and the tears started to warm her eyes. Then she remembered something. That ghostly woman said, I like to give people a hand. She had winked when she'd said it and wriggled her hand. That must be it. She must be the paradox. To glide through the whirlpool of slow time so easily must mean she was a time traveller or something special. Susan decided there and then she would pick up and hold the anemone and see if her theory worked. If she were to age rapidly, at least she could regenerate several times before dropping it to the ground again. The stakes were high, but she was the situation's best and only hope. With a deep breath, Susan picked up the throbbing mass. It was hot to begin with, but within a second the blinking lights peppered across its body faded and it became metallic-looking and cool. It wasn't slimy which surprised her, but more like the touch of a snake's body, tough like muscle, yet malleable. She smiled. Finally I get to hold you. You are truly beautiful. As she said these words, the world around her became instantly noisy again. Snow landed on her nose and she giggled. The bustle of the market seemed to have a new vigour to it, an injection of life as if to say, We are back. We are going to have fun this Christmas and nothing in the universe is going to stop us. She could hear the carol singers carrying on their Hark the Herald Angels singing. Just past the chestnut cellar, she could see the doctor looking at her with a frown. Susan, my dear girl, are you all right? He looked distracted as he said it, eyes darting from rooftop to rooftop. Of course I am, Grandfather. Look, it's a timing enemy. This was the cause of all the trouble. Beautiful, isn't it? As she said this, it seemed to respond with a rippling sheen of silver over its smooth body. A man trotting past squinted to see what Susan was holding, but he was quickly dragged away by his spouse, who was telling him all the wreaths would be gone if they didn't hurry. The doctor grabbed Susan's arm and started to move.
Yes, 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 very beautiful indeed, he said, suddenly bustling with activity and purpose. We must get back to the TARDIS and eject it back into the vortex. Within seconds he was jostling her along, past all the brightly coloured stalls and loud vigorous sellers who, up to a few minutes ago, were just silent statues. Grandfather, Susan said, confused at the doctor's urgency. It's all right, there's no need to panic. I placated it with a time paradox. You see, there was this woman and she helped me. Quite so, quite so, the doctor said briskly. He wasn't listening. He seemed to be preoccupied with the darkening cloud-covered sky. Please, Grandfather, why are we in such a hurry? I don't want to drop the... Her sentence was stopped dead by a terrifying screeching from above. Nathan Tilt was enjoying Tom's tallest tale yet, but even tales such as this had to stop when nature called. He came back from the shadows, relieved. I just miss hitting a dog, he said proudly. Anyway, you were saying, they vanished into a puff of smoke or something? No, Nate. They just disappeared. No smoke. But that ain't nothing compared to the next bit. What I heard next sounded like a grisly murder. There was a screaming coming from the market square. I ran round the corner and I know you won't believe me so I'm going to swear on Daisy's life. Oi, not mine, the rat said, pointing to Nathan. Is. All right, I swear on Nate's life, Tom quickly added. Oh yeah, perfect. That's me dead then, Nate said and did a mime of a noose around his neck. Listen, this bit's going to have you unsleeping for weeks. What I saw, crashing about the marketplace, flapping its tanned, leathery wings, was a monster, from the very depths of Lucifer's kitchen itself. It was all confused, like it had trouble flying, but it was trying hard to get to the old bloke and the young girl. And I tell you, they were running for their souls. The Doctor and Susan were running as fast as they could manage. A muscular, winged animal was dive-bombing them and snapping at their backs with its almighty beak stuffed with rows of tiny, sharp teeth. It clacked its jaws as it swooped past them. The TARDIS! Look! It's back, Susan! The Doctor was pointing to his space-time ship. Head for the TARDIS! Oh dear, oh dear, I'm too old for this! He ducked as the creature screamed past his head, knocking off his warm hat. He snatched up a walking stick from a blind beggar and thwacked the monster across the head on its return. Dazed from the beating, it reeled and then raised itself clumsily, knocking bent a street lamp with its ascent. The doctor gave the stick back. Thank you kindly, he said to the dazed beggar, dropping some Altarian dollars into the man's metal cup. With that, the beggar leapt up and ran away, looking over his shoulder at the impossible scene. He would have to continue his blind man ruse elsewhere, where it's less dangerous. Susan was about to make a break for the TARDIS when the monster, wings outspread, clattered onto the cobble street in front of her, with its talons scraping the stone whilst it steadied itself, its eyes deep-set, hiding pin-spot-burning red pupils. It looked like some prehistoric flying reptile. It looked like pure evil. The creature stood facing Susan for a moment, then arched its head back, to take a snap at her. Susan closed her eyes, but instead of feeling the jaws closing in around her, she heard a pathetic gulping squawk. When she opened one eye, she could see the creature staring at Ian and Barbara, who had appeared behind the surprised beast. They were both laden with pears and started lobbing them as hard as they could at its head. Come on then, what are you waiting for? 
shouted Ian, and then to Susan he said, Edge, your way around, Susan. She did as she was told. Then, from nowhere, she watched a small ragged boy run out into the street and grab a fallen pear from right under the creature's wing. What? There's a bloody great monster in the street, and you grabbed a pear from underneath its wings? Nathan was still unsure about the whole story. Yeah, all I could think about was what a waste it was lobbing those juicy fruits at it, so I wanted to grab one. The thing was looking elsewhere anyway, or so I was thinking. When I looked up, I could see it cocked its horrible muscular neck, and it was looking me straight in the eye. Oh, really? Sounds like my master. Turkey-necked old soak he is. You know he broke both his legs after three quarts of rum, don't you? Slipped on some ripe old pig's innards. Daisy was holding Nate's arm, hard, fascinated and scared of Tom's story. Nate was hoping she would loosen her grip with this comedic remark about pig's innards, but she seemed to grip harder when Tom looked her in the eye and proceeded with his yarn. So you know what I did? I was petrified, but I took a bite of the pear, showing the beastie that it tasted good. And I tell you, it tasted like angel's food. Then I said as big and as confident as I could, Here, boy, and threw it right towards its face. It opened up its gaping hole of a mouth like a starving hungry horse chomping on an apple, scoffed the lot. Then it started looking about for more, snuffling around like a dog looking for a bone. I found a few more near the iron gate, so I started snapping them up. I ran back to the corner and I heard something I couldn't believe. The old geezer was telling the younger bloke to jump on his back. Are you mad, Doctor? Ian shouted, bemused at the Doctor's ridiculous suggestion. That thing is a living nightmare. I used to ride these things barebacked on my planet as a youth. It's got two sinewy strands behind its ears. Just pull them to control it. Now, stop dilly-dallying and ride it. We have to get it back home. Ian made his decision. If the doctor could ride the thing, then so could he. He leapt onto his back, and it squealed a horrific, discordant cry. Barbara was worried. Ian, she called out, please, be careful. Ian bellowed over the air-splitting noise. Get the TARDIS doors open, Barbara. Let's see if the doctor's right. He sought for, and then found, and wrapped his hands around the tough piece of leathery skin hanging down behind the creature's ears, and tugged. The creature's body cambered left. He pulled both at the same time, and the wings outstretched and flapped. They were huge, and the snow around Tom puffed up over his head from the draught. Actually, shouted Ian, this isn't too hard to control. Just as he said this, the winged beast veered sharply and landed on the pear tree, snapping branches in the process. It tried trapping some of the yellow fruit in its long, teeth-lined beak, but they were just falling to the ground, burying themselves in the snow. Kick your legs into it, Chesterfield! The doctor's authoritative call gave Ian the impetus to deliver a swift dig of his shoes into the creature's side. This was enough to launch them both into the sky. With some deft tugging of the leathery strips of flesh, Ian lined the big reptile up and soared from the top of the Victorian townhouses towards the TARDIS. The gap looked tiny, but he was hoping the beast would realise this and compensate by tucking its wings in upon approach landing. Both he and his new pet screamed towards the light from the blue box.
And then the blue box faded away, like a spirit or something, making that noise I heard earlier, the groaning, neighing or sound. Tom had concluded his story. Well, you could have just said you nicked the pears from Taylor, the fruit stall man. I ain't never heard such a load of claptrap in all my life. Nathan was leaning back, hands behind his head, cap over his eyes. Tom punched Nathan sharply in the shoulder. Ow, what'd you do that for? Cause I ain't lying. Come on, I'll take you there now. Nah, so I'll stay here, thanks. I was dropping off then. You are coming, Nathan Tilt. Well, so help me. I will put beetles in your ears when you ain't looking. The rat had spoken. Nathan laughed as they all stood up and left for the park. The evening was in and the frost was scratching its way around London's windows. They were extremely cold as they approached Tom's corner, flapping their arms across their bodies to warm up. Tom, if you are lying, I swear to God, I will box you to your purple. He suddenly paused. Bloody hell! Tom stood there smiling. Near to his tree stood a gas street lamp lighting up one side of a laden pear tree. With a swift look around, the trio leapt across the street to the park. They stuffed their clothes with as much fruit as they possibly could. Christmas came and went, and spring beckoned. Through the winter, the gang had kept all of their pips. In the warm spring, they planted them all in the park. They were hoping for another miracle, one that might feed all of the street children of London. But miracles come but once a lifetime. However, as someone famous once said, Hope springs eternal, and sometimes hope is all you need to fuel ambition, inner strength, and eventually happiness. Well, that was an adventure, (laughs) that's for sure, Ian exclaimed to no one in particular wiping his already clean hands. One to tell the children, a small smile appeared on Ian's lips at the thought of having to tell his future children of this and other exciting adventures in the TARDIS. A thought occurred to him. He turned to the doctor who was unwrapping his scarf and hanging it on the resident coat stand. You'd said you'd ridden those things when you were a young man, Doctor. Just exactly where do you come from to have beasts like that roaming your skies? The doctor looked defensive. He plainly didn't like Ian Pryan. These beasts, as you call them, he said as he grabbed his lapels and jutted out his chin. Our vortosaurs, young man. They live, as you saw when we ejected him from the TARDIS, in what my race call the Vortex. A very dangerous and confusing place. I had a chance to ride one on my world, so I took it, of course. As you proved, Chesterfield, anyone can ride them, even you. Ian laughed at this faint praise. Why, thank you, kind sir. Ian intoned, performing a mock bow. It doesn't explain how it came to be in Victorian London, though. It's obvious, isn't it? As we materialised, it happened to be close to us in the vortex. The TARDIS simply pulled it through by accident. Not my fault, you understand? Yes, of course I understand. Ian shared a look with Barbara, who stifled a laugh. I doubt it, was the Doctor's underbreath touché. Barbara interjected before the Doctor could harumph his way into yet another argument with Ian. What about the pear tree, Doctor? That was completely out of place in the middle of winter. 
Was that dragged by the TARDIS from some other time? Susan realised that she could answer this and bounded over to Barbara. No, Barbara, don't be silly, she giggled. That was the time an enemy. It must have been dropped momentarily by the Vortasaur. They eat them, like your eagles eat mice, hunting them down like snacks. Poor little things. Barbara looked confused. I don't understand. Susan was enjoying teaching her teachers. The little defenceless thing simply chose to speed up time at that point, hoping, I expect, to shake off the Vortasaur or age it to death. It didn't, of course, and instead made the pear tree grow from a seed. Good thing, too. Those pears were delicious. She produced a pear from her winter coat, yellow and bulbous, with small brown freckles. This is my second day. She proceeded to bite into its perfectly soft and sweet flesh. Ian suddenly started to sing at full volume, nearly giving the doctor a heart's attack. At the top of his voice he bellowed, On the first day of Christmas my true love sent to me a vortosaur in a pear tree. The doctor shook his head in disbelief. But when he saw Susan laughing, he couldn't help cracking a smile. And as always when he smiled in his way, his eyes glistened with genuine warmth. The rest of the crew of this magnificent timeship laughed heartily. The Vortasaur flew off into the strange realm of confused time, with the laughter rippling away behind him. When the ship's crew landed, they were still laughing. Outside under a hot sun, a girl was watching the TARDIS become solid, her porcelain face looking on with curiosity. She turned and slipped away quietly into the forest whilst a magnificently dressed English king strode past. God rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay, for Jesus Christ our Saviour was born upon this day, to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Made of Eight, written and read by J.R. Southall. Count the cows, he said. How many cows can you count? It was the crack of dawn on Christmas Day in the last year of the 18th century, or the first year of the 19th, depending upon how you look at it, and the black sky was beginning to mellow. I was alone. It was the one morning of the year that my fellow girls, there were eight of us in all, were permitted not to come to work and being the eldest at twenty-three years of age, I had volunteered to take the solitary shift, a responsibility that usually would have been decided by lot. I was disappointed, you see. All my life, in spite of having had no education except for the basic rudiments of spelling at the parish Sunday school, I had had the feeling that I was destined for something better than milking cows. And yet here I was, at the age of twenty-three years, still a maid and still milking cows. Not that I hadn't had offers, of course. I'd been having offers ever since I'd last attended Sunday school at the age of eight. But like I say, I was certain I was destined for something better. There was a noise outside the milk shed, a man's voice. 
Good morning, ladies. Now, which one of you is the imposter, hmm? I leaned out through the doorframe to find a man standing in the darkness outside, surrounded by cows. He seemed to be talking to them. Jelly baby, he said, offering a paper bag to the nearest of the herd. He was roundly ignored. Attractive fellow he was, too. Tall, long, too long, brown hair, aristocratic and yet strange clothes, and something of a way about him. He might have been talking to the cows, but he was doing so with a certain confidence, a certain elegance. Here, I called out the door. What are you up to? The man looked up and seemed at once both pleased and yet troubled. You talking to they cows? I asked him. I thought for a minute, he said, and then changed his mind. Never mind what I thought. They're just cows, aren't they? It was both a statement rather than a question and an expression of relief. Been here long? The question was abrupt and inappropriate. Beg your pardon? Suddenly he started talking, the words coming thick and fast. I could barely make head nor tail of a one of them. You see, he said, I was minding my own business, drifting around in the time vortex, when suddenly the old girl, the TARDIS that is, my space and time travel machine, perceived a kind of distress signal faintly across the ether, and determining that it was coming from somewhere very near the vicinity of my favourite planet, well, here you are. He paused. Or rather, here I am. Where did you come from? Beg your pardon, sir? I couldn't think of anything else to say. And before I knew what was upon me, the man had sprung into action and strode the few metres between us in no more than the time it took to say those four words. He wasn't as tall as I thought he'd been, but then neither was I as tall as I'd like to have been, and still he towered over the top of me. His chin at a level with my forehead, he spoke again. Somewhere in this field a Florencidorian Seton is hiding. It's fallen to earth, so to speak, and being that Florencidorian Setons are shapeshifters, it might be disguised as anything, or any one. I don't suppose you know what I'm talking about, do you? No, sir, I said, or started to say, but I didn't get my words out in time. He leaned down and kissed me. Then, as quick as you like, it was over and done. The strange, posh man had kissed me, I slapped him for his trouble. He leaned back out again sharply, his face expressing a combination of surprise, relief, and concern. Deep inside, my childhood certainty that there was more for me in this life than milking cows burst into being once again. Not you, then, he whispered, as much of an apology as I assumed I was going to get. Those are human hormones racing around in there, or I'm a shibogan's uncle, and I'm not a shibogan's uncle... Am I? No, I'm not. Well, then. He paused to collect himself for the briefest of moments, and then he snapped, Good, I'm glad. And then he was a dervish of energy, his words racing past his lips as if they could barely be contained. So, it's not you, not the girl. Anybody else around here? No, just the girl. So, the Seton landed here, crashed here. Florencidorian Setons, not the brightest of species, but dangerous if provoked. Don't provoke it, then. That's the ticket. But must find it first. Find it, establish an entente, get it out of here before it can do any harm. He turned to me and asked me sharply, You're all alone here, aren't you? Nobody else around. What day is it? Cold. Must be midwinter. Anything strange happen this morning? Any strangers around? Any unexpected arrivals? 
I opened my mouth to answer, but he beat me to it. Apart from the obvious, please. Sir, I said tentatively, I am, to take it, you're looking for a stranger just arrived on Christmas morning. Christmas morning, is it? Well, I'm not a wise man, clearly, if that's what you're thinking. Well, that is to say, I am a wise man, but not one of the wise men you're thinking of, if that's what you were thinking. What year is this? Hmm, a rumour of Napoleon in the air, but not around these parts, no. Maybe you weren't thinking that after all, were you? No matter. Glad we cleared that up. The man looked inquiringly around, and I wondered if he'd kiss me again. So, he said rather sharply, if it's not you, and it's not me, and there's nobody else around here... Then, I said. Then I was right first time, and I really, really wasn't expecting that. As I tried to work out what the man might have meant, he turned quickly and marched back to the door of the milking shed. Then he paused, as if waiting for me to catch up. I followed him. Outside, the day was beginning to break. A chill, silent air hung heavily over the steam rising from the cows as they milled about, waiting to be milked. "'Count the cows,' said the man. "'How many cows can you count?' Fifty-seven, I said, without even having to think, let alone do any counting. "'Are you sure? Count again.' I counted the cows, one by one, and it took a moment or two, and then I turned to the man, and I wish I might have been able to see the expression that he could see on my face. Fifty-eight, I said. Fifty-seven, he said. One of them is not a cow. I looked at him. One of them is not a cow, I repeated. Without even knowing what his words meant, suddenly I seemed to understand. One of them be this, this... Florence thingy, this thing that fell from the sky? That's right. How do we find out which? I'm not kissing fifty-eight cows, and that's a fact. We'll have to think of something else. What do you suggest? Hmph, <laughs> said the man. He was actually rather handsome. Pretty, rather. He scratched his chin. I don't know, but I'm not putting my hand anywhere it shouldn't be put, either. I had enough of that when I was blonde. You were blonde? Amongst other things. Ah, yes, the celery, I said, without thinking or knowing why. What? he spluttered. The thing that fell out of the sky, I asked. It looks like a cow, but it ain't really a cow? That's correct. Well, then it won't give any milk. That's right, said the man, rather with excitement. That's right, brilliant. So I can get back to milking, I said, and you can find your thing that fell out of the sky, and both of us will be happy. It's not the ideal way to spend your Christmas morning, I'm afraid, looking for a Florentatorian Seton. It's more exciting than what I expected. It's not the best way to spend your Christmas morning anyway, milking cows. Can I help? the man asked. It's what I do, I told him, and I'd rather you didn't do any milking. You can bring the cows in, if you like. I set to work milking the cows, all fifty-eight of them, fifty-seven and a something that fell out of the sky. I'm sorry to have dropped you into all this, said the man after a while. It ain't your fault. 
I wasn't sure why I didn't think so, but somehow I knew that it really wasn't his fault. Somehow I knew that he was just as in the middle of all this as I was. I also knew that it was important that we found the something that fell out of the sky, whatever that might be. The man sat and watched me milk the cows, and I sat and watched the man as he watched me milking them. Occasionally he would take the milked cows out and bring some fresh ones in, and sometimes he would talk. He was pretty, no question of that, and elegant and strong. You could see how strong he was just by looking into his eyes. But he was also kind and generous, and there was something about him that was reassuring, as if wherever he went in that blue box of his, how did I know that? He would never willingly allow harm to come to anyone. So, this is how you always spend your Christmas, he asked. That's right, I said. Is there nothing you'd rather be doing? I sighed. Someone got to do it, and if it weren't me, it'd be someone else. I'd rather it were me. That's a very charitable world view. Besides, whoever does the milking Christmas morning gets to eat with the master and his family at the end of the day. That's a better meal than I get at home. And there's the giving, too. The giving? After I finish the milking and before dinner, I said, the master and his wife choose one of the cows and take it to church. For the children. One family then gets to keep the cow, and they'll have free milk from it for as long as it lives. Ah, very benevolent, something for the community. Master likes to make sure the folk in the village are well looked after. I like this place, the man said. The world could stand to take an example from this place. You suit it very nicely. Thank you, sir. He looked at me, his face open and pleased, and I plucked up the courage to ask him a question. Where are you from? I said. Outer space, he replied. Do you believe me? I've no idea what outer space even means, I said. But I believe you. He smiled and went off and fetched some more cows. Sir, I said as he returned. Something wrong, he asked. You might say that, I said, holding up the fresh pail. I might indeed, he said quietly his eyes widening as he looked at the green milk it contained. He dipped a fingertip and tasted it. Not bad, he said. It's milk. It's milk, I repeated. It's just green, is all. I mean, it's edible. It's genuine, he said. Produced by an alien, maybe. A shape-shifting alien, but genuine. I nodded towards the cow that I had just milked. You think this is... this is... Florence thingy, then? No question, said the man. The question now is, what to do with her? What should we do with her? The man crossed his fingers under his chin, looking pensive. She might be dangerous, he said, his words slipping away almost to silence. A Florentian Seton, when pushed into a corner. But then again... He leaned over the cow and whispered something very quietly into its ear. The cow just stood there. The man waited a second or two and repeated his action. Again, the cow just stood there, oblivious. It swished its tail and eventually uttered a low moo. It looked just like a normal cow, but its milk was green. I think it's stuck, said the man. 
and before I could respond he ran outside. I waited, keeping a wary eye on the something that fell out of the sky that looked just like an ordinary cow. A few minutes later he ran back in again. It's definitely stuck, he said. Stuck? I said. Stuck, he said. How do you mean? It's stuck in the shape of a cow. I've just been out and found its ship, its travel machine, if you like, and its anti-vacuum bubble burst burst on impact, completely destroyed, must have shape-shifted just before the power finally earthed itself completely. So you see, without its anti-vacuum bubble, without any power, it's stuck in the shape of a cow. I see, I said. I didn't see, not really, but the way he said, it made it sound like it was important, and true, made it sound like it was a good thing, so that was what mattered. We'll call her Florence, he said. Easier to remember than Florence thingy, whatever it is. Yes, but she could still be dangerous if provoked, even stuck in the shape of a cow. So we must make sure she's safe, that she never comes to danger. That's easy enough, I told him. It is, he said. Well, we'll give her to the children. They'll look after her. Good idea. I should have thought of that myself. You probably would have, I said realising he probably already had. Of course, said the man, they'll be drinking green milk for the foreseeable future, but it's not harmful. They'll probably like that. And I've no idea how long she'll live. She might last a very long time. He emphasised the word very. They'll probably like that too. That's that then, said the man, clapping his hands together. Right, best be on my way. He grinned and turned and strode back out into the field. I followed as far as the milking shed door and watched him cross the daylit grass and back to his blue box, glowing under the early morning sun. Make sure they look after her, he called over his shoulder, and have a merry Christmas. I watched him enter the blue box and fade away into adventures new. And you look after yourself, I whispered to the empty field. I won't always be there to see you on your way. In the garden of a small cottage in a small village on the edge of Millmoor in the county of Wessex there stands a wooden grave marker, and upon it the name Clara Oswald. Just beneath the name, somebody, that man, has scratched a number. That was the story of Clara Oswald the 71st, I said to the doctor, my doctor. He shook his head in wonderment. "'Don't you find it depressing?' he asked, visiting all these graves. "'No, not a bit,' I replied. "'It reminds me how amazing and vast and sad and beautiful and dangerous the universe is.' I paused. "'And that there's always something else to do.' The doctor grinned, that impossibly excited old young grin in that impossibly old young face. Come on, then, he said, whirling around to face the TARDIS. We'd better be on our way. <laughs>